Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting its listeners. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber today at mormondiscussion.podbean.com. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Wendy Montgomery, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm great, Bill. How are you doing? I'm doing excellent. I am so, I'm just, I say this at the beginning of every episode. I'm so excited to have the guest on, but with you, I mean, I, I mean that, I mean it with them too, but I mean it with you so much more sincerely in the sense that I, having heard your story, I was just emotionally distraught and, and my listeners may not even know what I'm talking about. So let me give some background. Today on the, ep- on this episode, we have, uh, Wendy Montgomery on. We're going to talk about, uh, the issues within the LGBT community, and specifically her son, Jordan, uh, who is a gay Mormon, and the impact that uh, that the church has had in some ways on their family, and also the ways that they've tried to, to navigate through the church, specifically the church culture, as they've had to, to uh, deal with this essentially conflict within our faith of, of how our stance on this issue versus the need for this young man to feel loved and welcomed. Uh, within his faith community. Uh, Wendy, I wonder if you might start us off just sharing just kind of a, a basic storyline for people. And I guess before I let you do that, uh, if you go to the, the notes for this episode, there'll be a couple of links to an episode that was done on the Cultural Hall podcast, which I thought was just exceptional. And, uh, and then another one with, uh, Mormon Mental Health, where, uh, where Wendy sits down with uh, her entire family and tells their story. And so I, I want you to know that the story's out there for the listeners. I want you to listen to those and, and get a feel for that. But I want to tackle some of these issues directly with Wendy today. So, Wendy, if you could start us off maybe just sharing a, a basic outline of, of the events that, that occurred, and we'll go from there. Sure. Um, I guess in a nutshell, I'll tell you that, you know, my husband and I were raised in very conservative, devout, faithful Mormon homes. We were married in the temple. We have five children, and we've been raising our children pretty much the same in, you know, a fairly conservative religious environment. Um, my son Jordan is our oldest. He is currently 15. Uh, he came out to us and told us that he was gay in January of 2012 when he was 13. And coming from, you know, where we were growing up super-duper Mormon, um, this turned our world upside down. And it, it was a really steep learning curve for us. We read everything we could find to educate ourselves. Um, and we saw clearly how devastating this was to so many gay Mormons. Um, this prompted us to become more vocal in supporting our son um, and supporting other people that are going through this. So when Dr. Caitlin Ryan of the Family Acceptance Project approached us and asked if we would um, do a, a short documentary uh, from the Mormon perspective of, of what this is like navigating our faith and um, having a gay child, we said yes um, because we thought maybe our story could help other families going through this because, you know, it's a difficult road. So that's the nutshell story of ours. Awesome. Awesome. I want to now, let's start kind of going back in time. Let's go to before you found out that your, your son Jordan was gay. Uh, Growing up in the church, what were, what were the notions you held prior to having to, 
to deal with this face to face? What were some of the thoughts that you felt like anyway that the church had had taught you and what were some of the perspectives that you held? Um well, some of the the ideas that I remember having in my head growing up, and I don't remember if they were words that were actually spoken. I don't know how those those thoughts came to me, if it was just I absorbed those from my culture or they were things that were actually said. I don't have a memory of where they came from. I just know that they were there, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, but I remember having, you know, the thought of or hearing things like AIDS was God's punishment to the homosexual community, that AIDS was a disease of choice, that they chose to get it. Um, so there was very little sympathy for people that had AIDS. Um, and I grew up kind of in, in the 80s, uh, born in the 70s. But, you know, I remember a lot of what was happening um, on, on news and, and hearing other people talk about it. So I remember hearing a lot about AIDS and, and you know, it was their own fault for getting it. Um, I remember hearing things like being gay is a choice. Um, it's an abomination to God, a deviant lifestyle. Um, and to be honest, I never knew another gay person, at least that I knew was gay. So I, I really didn't have another frame of reference. I didn't have a reason to question what I was hearing as I grew up. I just sort of believed my parents. I believed the church leaders. I just believed what was what I heard. So this was my concept of gay people, you know, throughout my life. Excellent. And, and maybe to kind of take this to another detail in the story and to kind of get a feel for for how your view was, an important part of your story, you guys lived in California, correct? And and at the time, this was during the uh, the Prop 8 uh, stuff going on there. So, and I know, so I know an important part of the story that you've got is that uh, the church, through its leadership, came to you uh, at the local level and asked if you would you would support. Uh, Prop 8, and uh, and I know that that just having listened to your story that you helped out with that. I, I want to ask you, I guess at that time, when, when the church asked you to participate and to help and assist with the Prop 8 uh, stuff going on, um, how did you see Prop 8? What were your thoughts about it? What did, I mean, did you just automatically, you know, sustain the church and assume that this was the right course of action or, or did you have any reservations at the time? I mean, what was going through your mind? Um, well, our, our bishop came to our home and he asked, and, and this was a common practice back then. It wasn't just us, but, um, the leaders would come to their homes and ask if you could donate financially. And we have five little kids and we just didn't have extra funds. So we weren't able to do that. So he asked if we could uh, donate our time and go out one day. Um, and what he wanted us to do specifically was, um, kind of a survey where we would just go door to door and we would ask if the election was that day, which way would you vote? And we really didn't do any, like, pushing for or against Prop 8. We just wrote down their answer and told them, um, this is the election day. Please go out and vote. Um, so that was our, our one day of helping. Um, we had a sign in our yard. Um, it got stolen once, so we, we put another sign up. Um, and I, I remember being very conflicted inside through this whole time period. But I think I attributed, you know, those, like, feelings to... You know, when I went door to door, I didn't want to be yelled at people or um, I, I don't like confrontation. And I felt like I was this was a super confrontational issue and I kind of just didn't want to be in the middle of it. So that's kind of what I thought my conflict was coming from. And it could very well have been that. I don't know. But um, I had never in my entire life questioned my leaders or the church before ever. And, you know, to be honest, I didn't question them either. I just did what, what I was asked. I had heard my entire life that if the church asks you to do something, you do it, whether it's to give a talk in church or accept a calling, you know, that these are, these are blessings and opportunities to serve 
and your leaders are, you know, the spokesman for God. So it's basically like you're saying yes to God when they ask you to do something was, was my mentality. So I didn't question. I just went along with it. And I don't know if I even, I mean, our, our circle of friends and um, family is very, very Mormon. So I really didn't have any people attacking me or, or arguing with me about this point. Everybody just agreed with what we were doing. I think I, I just tried not to think about the details of Prop 8. You know, to me, since I didn't know any gay people personally at the time, it's like the issue wasn't real to me. There weren't real faces I saw to see who I was hurting by what I was doing. And to this day, you know, and this has been several years, but since my son came out, that was, so two and a half years, this has been my number one biggest regret and source of shame. If I could have a do-over for any day in my life, and I've done a lot of dumb things, I would do a do-over on that day. I just, I didn't know. Yeah, you know, you talk about the the culture in the church of not being able to turn down when the church asks you to do something. And I, I can remember in my 18 years in the church, I joined the church as, a, as an older teenager. And I can remember in my time in the church, at least three talks where leadership got up and, and talked about you don't, you don't turn down callings, that you don't, you know, when the church calls you to serve, this isn't a church of volunteers, this is a church of assignment. When the church gives you something to do, you, you say yes. And, and it would also go on to talk about those who turned those opportunities down. And it was almost like the talk was saying, hey, you don't want to be one of those kinds of people who turn down callings. And I, and I absolutely can relate to you in the, the, pressure we all feel within the church to accept any call that comes our way and to say yes to any responsibility or assignment that is pointed towards us, even if that responsibility or assignment is just the absolute worst fit in the entire world. And and I can see how that plays into when they show up at your, your home that day to ask you to participate in this uh, this political uh, this political issue, which also has lots of ramifications to, to feel pressured in a sense to get involved with that. And I think in some ways we just have to kind of lighten up as a church culture and allow people because of their situations to say, Hey, this, this isn't going to work for me. I can't accept this call. I can't do this at this moment. And for there not to be a negative stigma on that. If, uh, this may be a tough question because I'm going to ask you to play hypotheticals for a second. And I, and I personally hate hypothetical questions, but, uh, if your son, was straight. He wasn't gay. He never came out, uh, as gay. It's just, it's not, it's a non-issue. Do you see yourself in any way shifting on this the way you have, or do you think you'd still be in that place you were before all this? Um, well, to be honest, I, I can say, I don't think I would have shifted to the degree that I have. Um, I mean, it's hard to know for sure, but his coming out was such a pivotal moment for me having to rethink everything everything I thought I knew about about life, about who my son was, about some of the things that the church had taught me. Like I had to start from ground zero and rebuild everything. My thought process, my testimony. Um, it's like, I, I feel like we're going to always measure time from his coming out day before he came out and after he came out because it was that pivotal for us. So I to be honest, I doubt I would have got it to the level I do now. I probably would have just evolved at a much slower pace, I guess, maybe, you know, in step with the church, because um, that's how I had always been. You know, I, I just never really thought the question. I, I had these blinders on that I didn't even know I was wearing. Um, and it just, but with Jordan, you know, when it's, when it's your child or someone that you love so deeply, 
you have to figure things out really quick. And time is a luxury that we didn't have because he was talking about suicide. He was super depressed. I mean, I had to figure out how to do this quickly. And there what there wouldn't have been that kind of pressure if it wasn't my son or somebody that I loved to figure this out. And that's my whole point in asking the question is that there are a lot of people within within the church and even in the world at large who who see being gay as this this gigantic negative thing and and it's easy to make these kinds of judgments and assumptions and to to look at people a certain way until you actually put faces to names and obviously having it be your child made it obviously as as personal as it possibly can get but i worry that often in the church as we as we talk about these kinds of issues whether it was the racism in the 70s and before whether we're talking about the lgbt uh, issue or uh, or women's issues that are in the church going on in the church right now it's easy to stand back when you don't have somebody in your circle of influence who is affected uh, by these kinds of issues and to just say, well, you know, this is the way it is and tough it out. Sorry about your luck. And uh, and unfortunately, it's not until you have a, a sibling or a child or a parent or a friend that you love and care for deeply who is deeply affected and harmed by these issues that it becomes personal and it, and it causes you to shift. And, and, I, and the only reason I asked that question was so that people can see that it's by knowing others. It's by interacting with people you disagree with or people who have a different viewpoint or who have a different lifestyle than you that you get to know people and you say, you know, now that I understand you better, I can understand why you think along the ways you do and why you see the world the way you do. And, and I can I can have more empathy for that. I uh, I want to talk for a moment about the way in which people reacted, and I know this is probably, the, at least for me as I listen to your story, was the hardest part, but uh, I, I know from your story that when your, your son came out that you and your husband uh, reacted, I think, as well as any parents could do. And I hope that anybody who maybe who is uh, who has a similar issue like this within their fam- family dynamics that you might listen to these other interviews where Wendy and her husband have spoken and and realize maybe the appropriate way to to react, which is to simply love love those that we care for and not to not to make a choice necessarily between I have to choose the church or I have to choose to to love to continue to love this person. But when when you guys handled it, obviously you handled it well. But at that point, you guys made a decision that uh, that as a family you were going to make this known to your ward and essentially put your foot down and say this is this is our expectation of how our son will be treated. Would you mind sharing with us that experience? Sure. Um, well, Jordan had come out in January, and by about August of that year, um, we just. He knew that he was 100% loved and supported by us. We, we made that clear every moment we could, but he was still really depressed talking about suicide to the point where we were, we were just so, so afraid for him. Um, and he would just say, I hate, I hate the hiding. I hate that I can't trust my friendships. And that was an eye-opening statement for me when he said that. He said, Mom, I can't trust my friendships because if they really knew who I was, they wouldn't want to be my friend. And I have never had to think of that from my own point of view, and how horrible that would be. Um, so we talked to him and we said, do you want to come out to other people? I mean, at this point, my immediate family, um, like my, my parents and my husband's parents and siblings, they all knew, and a couple of our church leaders knew, but pretty much nobody else. But there was a lot of rumors and a lot of people saying things that they suspected about Jordan being gay. Um, there was bullying going on. So we thought, you know, we talked to him. We said, do you want to come out? You know, and he says, yeah, I think I do. Super scary moment. He's so incredibly brave to do that at 13. 
Um, so we decided that after our immediate families and, and um, our church leaders knew that we would write a letter um, telling a little bit of, of Jordan's story, and he helped us write this, and this is all with his permission, um, and also to kind of set the tone for how we expected him to be treated at church, you know, at school, pretty much everywhere, and that was just like every other boy that was there, not special treatment, just the same. Um, so we put that out, and initially... We were loved and embraced, and we don't see him any different, and we love Jordan. He's a fantastic kid. So it was initially wonderful and and supportive, but I think as the feeling of uh, maybe people's, you know, compassion or empathy from reading our story and feeling some of the heartbreak we were going through, I think maybe some of the compassion sort of waned a bit, and they were just left with the thought, that boy's gay. And... Over a couple months, it started getting really extremely difficult for us at church. Um, I, I remember walking kind of around the corner of my church building and, and hearing um, different conversations, and I'm wondering how many were taking place that I didn't run into. But the ones that I the ones that I heard were things like, "If Jordan Montgomery is going to scout camp, my son's not going," or um, "He better not try and hit on my son, or they'll show, sure hear it for me." Um, and different things, and it seemed like fast and testimony meeting became all about the proclamation to the family, you know, about marriages between a man and a woman and nothing else, and, and all things that, you know, the members of the church believed, but it was, it, and maybe it was from our point of view, but it felt like it was really hammered home. You know, there was even this one point where a woman gets up and, and they, were, they would specifically talk about, you know, the decline of society is coming from the homosexual community. And, you know, she, she kind of goes up and does those air quotes. And she says, you know, those people, in air quotes, they just get diseases they choose to get and die. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. And it just so happened I was giving the closing prayer that day in church, and she was the last testimony. So I had to get up after that. Um, wow. You know, so, I mean, just so many little jabs and little, you know, little experiences. And, you know, some of the worst things were people um, wouldn't take the sacrament for my son. And the first time I saw that happen, I thought, you know, maybe they're just not taking the sacrament for whatever personal reason they have. You know, but I was, I watched as my son would move further down the road, and then that person motioned another deacon over to him to take the sacrament. And that happened a few times. Um, and at that point, it is hard not to just stand up in a rage and cause a big scene. How dare they? This boy is every bit as worthy as these other boys. But, um, you know, I, I've had people email me and, and call me and just say the most offensive, horrible things. And even even at church, I had a woman say, um, you know, you should have your children taken away from you and given to somebody that will teach them to follow the prophet better, your horrible mother. Um, I mean, just, I, I could go on and on, and I don't want this to be a negative podcast, but, um, you know, the effect of what has happened, you know, it's, there's still some anger that I need to work through, um, and I don't think I've worked through all of it yet. But my son used to love going to church and participating in, in everything that he could. And, you know, this is a boy that keeps the law of chastity. He's worthy of the Aaronic priesthood that he holds. You know, he's he's yet to even hold a boy's hand. You know, but over the past couple of years, I've watched his testimony and his love for spiritual things just kind of evaporate uh, because some of his biggest hurts and worst experiences have come from members of my church. And for him, he now associates God with pain and fear and rejection and loss. You know, so even if the church's policy didn't specifically exclude gay people, it seems like the everyday members have so ruined my son's desire to even be a Mormon. You know, so at, at this point, two years later, 
um, you know, he, he would come home from church in, in tears. And I said, I just, I, I don't want him to associate God with all of those horrible emotions he has when he's at church. That is the opposite of what should be happening at church. Um, so we don't, we don't make him go. He goes when he wants to. He stays home when he wants to. I just, I won't inflict more pain on him and make him go where he feels he's not wanted. Yeah, but for me, when, when I go to church without him, I look down the pew and I see my other four children and know that one is missing and one is at home by himself. And I'm angry and I'm heartbroken that he feels that he can't be there. You know, in, in a church that's all about families, they're sure dividing many of them. You know, so I've had to, you know, do extensive work personally for myself to separate, you know, the doctrine of the church um, or, or the pure gospel from the policies, culture, and some leadership and, and ignorant members of the church. I've had to kind of dissect my testimony and dig really deep. It's been so hard. Anyone that's gone through any type of a crisis of faith knows that feeling of just being unmoored and I'll just address with no foundation. Um, and But what I have learned through all of this, you know, what do I believe? What's hurting me and needs to be set aside? But Almost always what's hurting doesn't come from the pure gospel or the doctrine of the church. It comes from the policies and the culture and the members. And that's where the change needs to happen. Yeah, you know, you talk, when I listened to this this portion of these experiences that you had had, as I said in the beginning, it was heart-wrenching. I, I sat in my car and I just pulled over and I just cried for like 10 minutes because you you have a young man here who, as you point out, is as worthy as any young man can be. And in the church, we've, we've come a long way. We've, we've recognized now that we take the official position that being gay is not a choice. It's not like, it's not like Jordan asked for, for this lot in life. It's not like he, he said, Hey, you know what? I'm going to choose to, to be different than everybody else in this way. And, and yet we as members of the church just feel like there's this need to, to take this, and, and, and I know we don't maybe feel it when we do it, and I think we all do it at different times in our life, but we take this holier-than-thou perspective, like it's my job to defend the church, and it's my job to set the world straight, and it's my job to, to let everybody know what problems they've got. And as you pointed out, anybody who's been even through just a, you know, a crisis of faith, you, you've had everything taken away from you, everything stripped down and, and taken apart, and, and just... In similar ways to your son, certainly not to the, to the extent that your son has experienced, but I go into church on Sunday and I'm so excited on Saturday to get to church. I can't wait. I'm just thrilled. And I get to church on Sunday and it never fails. Like anytime having, having spent my time putting my faith back together, there's only a certain way now that I can make it work. I have to be allowed to have a faith that's flexible, that, that makes some allowances, that has some nuance and complexity. And as you point out, the doctrine allows for that. The doctrine's there and it's, it's beautiful, but there's still members of the church who say, nope, this is the brand of Mormonism and everybody needs to abide by it. And they try to push you as a square peg into the round hole. And all you do, essentially you don't fit and you say, well, do I keep fighting to try and fit in this, fit in this or do I just walk away? And it breaks my heart that whether we're talking about gay people, whether we're talking about people who have had their, their faith completely lost because of discovering things within church history or, or perhaps whether it's, uh, issues of abuse or other, other big experiences in their life that have caused them to lose their trust or feel betrayed by either the church or its members, that there seems to be this need by members to still try and, try and force all of us to abide by their brand of Mormonism. 
and it's just heart-wrenching to hear you talk about the treatment your your worthy son received to to have someone turn down the sacrament because the young man who's perfectly worthy handing it to him is gay. I, I can't imagine anybody understanding the doctrine of the church and thinking, yeah, that's the appropriate measure to take. And unfortunately, we have people who do it. I uh, I guess I want to ask, why do you think, maybe just get just your two cents on why you think members feel the need to to push, to kind of make a dividing line and to push people to one side or the other on issues like this. In other words, in other words, in the church, there seems to be this inherent flexibility within its doctrine to, to have some wiggle room. And yet when we walk into our church on Sunday, members tend to want to, to say, Hey, this is the way I've got it put together and everybody has to abide by that. And anybody who doesn't, I'm going to make it clear to them that they don't belong. What do you think necessitates that? that kind of action? Um, well, I think I think for the most part what we have experienced is not people trying to be openly hateful and hurtful. I, I think it's members of the church, you know, this is the way that they are bearing their testimony and defending the church because somehow they feel like who my son is and what we are trying to do is threatening of the church. When from my perspective, I feel like I am living my religion and the love Christ wants us to show for each other better than I ever have in my entire life. I feel like if I were to see the Savior tomorrow, I could look him in the eye because I know what I am doing is helping his his brothers and sisters and helping the Lord, or Heavenly Father's children. I have no doubt in what we are doing that we're, we're trying to help these people feel loved by God where they don't. They feel rejected by God because of what some of the members are doing, not because of what God has been doing. Um, so I, I really feel like this is how that they feel like they need to defend their religion. Um, but also maybe on a deeper level, I know how excruciating it is to go through a faith crisis, especially when being Mormon and having that faith is all I have ever known. And I love it deeply. It is such a core part of who I am. I don't even know who I would be if I wasn't Mormon. So when something comes along that feels outside of your normal scope of how you view your religion and how you view life, like this did for me at least, it feels threatening. And we don't like things that are outside of our comfort zone. And and having to go through a faith crisis or having to really think outside of the normal Mormon box is really uncomfortable. It's this whole cognitive dissonance idea. And it is rough. So it's like I part of me, you know, I understand where they fight against it because they don't want to go there. It's too hard. It's too difficult. They're they're fine in their little comfort zone, and they don't want to be pushed. But I can tell you that on the far side of that faith crisis is a faith deeper than I would have ever had had I not gone through this. I feel like my testimony and my relationship with the Savior is, it used to be maybe more in theory or maybe not tested to this level, but now it feels like a real, tangible thing. And he has helped me more in the past two and a half years because I have needed him so much. So I feel like what I have now on the far side of of my faith crisis, I guess you could call it, is so much deeper and richer and more beautiful than it would have been if I had stayed in that little bubble. So that's my two cents. Yeah. <laughs> what you said was perfect in that as you're saying it, I'm sitting here thinking that I could very easily say the exact same words you just used. And I, and I think you hit on something, which is there's this really big tension between, between those who, who, who are kind of where the church culture allows all of us to be comfortably 
And there's those of us who, because of life circumstances, have had to reframe our faith in a new way. And, and here's the tension. The tension is one side, in a sense, feels kind of threatened that here is somebody bringing something different into the equation, and it's never belonged before, and so why do I allow it now? And so there's this pushback, as you point out. On the other side of the coin, for people like you and me, for us to hang around, there has to be a space for us, and we can't put it back together the old way it used to be. We can't see things the way they were. And I'll give one example, and this is this is outside of, of the issue we're talking about in a sense with your son, but I think it'll speak to, to that as well as just the overarching issue of, of each of us being on a faith journey and coming to different places. In uh, Within the church doctrine, there is room to see certain aspects of of the gospel figurative, figuratively or allegorical. And yet most of church, of the church, and specifically when we talk about church culture, this, there's a majority of members who see things very literal, take things absolutely at its word. And there's this tension, right? So you have a large chunk of Mormons who absolutely have been taught, trained, understand that the gospel is to be seen in this very literal way. And yet... For people like me who have come through a faith crisis, who have reassembled my faith, the only way I can make the gospel work, the only way I can survive and breathe and not suffocate is if I'm allowed to see some aspects of the gospel figuratively and allegorical. Now, the doctrine of the church allows for that. There's leaders within the church who have made quotes to say that some aspects of the fall are figurative or some aspects of the creation are figurative. And and there's that allowance there doctrinally, which is what you and I are talking about, that doctrinally there's, there's plenty of room to survive in and lead with faith. But culturally, there's this black and white way of seeing things, and, and there's a group of members who simply can't even consider allowing someone to come into the midst of them taking a figurative or allegorical approach to aspects of the gospel it just it just seems absolutely foreign to them and i get it they haven't they haven't thought through those things before but for the person who's who's put their faith back together and that's the only way it works by you pushing back against them you're essentially saying sorry there's no space here for you now to take this back to the issue we're talking about today you know your son is gay. Gay is not a choice based on the doctrine of the church. And so it's not a sin. And there's nothing wrong with being, with having, uh, that, that tendency to be, to be gay, to be, uh, to have same sex attraction or to be a gay person. And yet we feel like we have to essentially say, no, sorry, for the church to be true, there can't be any space for you. This is, this is what it has to be. And I just don't think those people realize how much they're pushing you and me out of the church when they when they act with that kind of judgment and that kind of harshness. Yeah, it's incredibly difficult to stay. <laughs> but you do it, and uh, and yeah, and for that, uh, I think that that you and your son, your your husband, your entire family. I had a wonderful chance to listen to uh, on the Mormon Mental Health uh, podcast. Uh, your daughter talk about some of her experiences where she was brave enough and courageous enough to ask leaders if they understood the doctrine of the church on the issue of being gay and how often she would run into leaders who thought they understood the position, would state it incorrectly, and uh, as brave as she was, she'd raise her hand again and say, actually, this is... This is the position of the church, and you can find it in you know on mormonandgays.org or on this spot on lds.org. And so I just want to say I appreciate every member of your family for being brave and for staying in and for being an example to others who come after you to be able to have your story to look to and to, to say, okay, here's a way in which we can deal with this and put things back together. Oh, thank you. No, my daughter, Susanna, she's just 
she's a fierce defender of her brother. Uh, she teases them and, and they, you know, they're siblings and they like bug each other sometimes, but there is nobody that has Jordan's back like her. And she's, she's brave in a way that I have never seen a teenager, a teenager be brave to go, you know, essentially toe to toe with, with some of our local top leaders that I find intimidating. <laughs> you know, she's, she just, she amazes me constantly. I can't wait to see her as an adult. Right. And, and I think one of the things that really catches my eye in, in her having shared some of her experiences where she's asking leadership about if they understand, understand the doctrine and policy around this issue is that very few, it seems like, at least in my experience and listening to yours and others' experiences, it seems very few leaders are aware of the resources and policies and doctrines that are available to them to better understand these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sadly, it's true. We have the church has put out this website, MormonsEngaged.org, and our local leaders didn't know about it until we told them. Um, and it took them a little while to even go look at it because for a while they would say, "Oh, well, we know what the church's position is." And I'm like, "To know it is this place that I know of personally where they come out in the first paragraph and say something to the effect of, we recognize this is not a choice." And that is huge because somebody that you see as, you know, he's choosing to be this way, you know, he's this quote-unquote dirty sinner, all of a sudden, if he's not choosing it, this this boy deserves your empathy and your compassion for having to walk a road that is very difficult. So recognizing it's not a choice is a big deal. I'm going to ask a tough question. At least I think it's tough. Maybe you'll you'll knock it out of the park because I think it forces us to walk a really tight line. But why do you think it is that so few people, especially in leadership positions, are completely unaware of the website and of the church's stance on this issue? Um, I don't know. We've, we've had the experience to meet with um, Elder Christofferson and also the, the head of the Church Public Affairs Department. And that was a question that we asked both times. I mean, at first we expressed our gratitude for this website because we had about a year Jordan came out in January, and the website came out in December of 2012. So we had about a year without the website, and every time we met with leaders, it felt like they were seeing us as asking for a special treatment for our son, when really we just wanted him to be treated the same. But once we had this website, it felt like we had a leg to stand on and, you know, the top leadership backing up what we were trying to have happen for him. Um, so we were very grateful when we met with these, you know, top leaders of the church. And But then we asked, you know, is there a way that this can be promoted more? Because so many don't even know that this website exists. We asked if it could be, you know, included in the links on LDS.org. On the left-hand side, down near the bottom of LDS.org, there's a list of all the church's other websites. There's um, MormonYouth.org, FamilySearch.org, um, Mormon.org, Mormon Channel. There's a whole list of them, but Mormons and Gays is not there. And strangely enough, that one's excluded. Yeah. I mean, maybe there are other ones they have that aren't there, but I don't know of them. I just know of this one that's not listed there. Um, we asked if it could be talked about in a general conference talk, if it could be an Ensign article, or even a letter sent to bishops or state presidents to be read over the pulpit in a sacrament meeting or state conference. I mean, the church is brilliant at getting information to its members quickly, if necessary. And I'm just wondering why they have this beautiful website that, you know, to be honest, it's not everything I want it to be, but it is such an enormous step forward, I really can't complain. And if members just followed what that website said, my son's life and our life at church would be a world different. Yeah, so I, you know, and, and we got we got a few answers from the leaders, and I know they have to walk, you know, a really tight rope between the super conservative members of the church and the more progressive members of the church, and they're thinking, you know, one of the leaders even said, you know, we still get letters 
um, from members of the church that said blacks should have never received the priesthood. <laughs> so if, if there are some people that are still that behind the times, then maybe this is an issue that, because they had expressed to us that when this website came out, they got a lot of letters of gratitude for it, but they got an equally large number of letters of you're caving to social pressure, um, I can't believe our church is doing this. You know, even though the doctrine of the church has not changed, I shouldn't say the doctrine, the policies of the church have not changed on this issue, but the tone is so much more compassionate and patient and loving on that website. I just, I keep wondering why it's not, why they put this website together and that it's not being implemented the way it could be. Yeah, and, and this is my thought, and you're, you're free to take a, a, a position with this as well or put in your two cents or, or not and we'll just move on but maybe I'll just I'll just say it there's uh there's this feeling within me like so th- so this website states this viewpoint this this stance the church has taken the church takes a stance which perhaps in the past it hasn't been so clear on and there are members of the church who are gonna from what you're saying gonna be hurt either way that they're going to either lose faith or or see themselves as separating themselves from the church on either side of the spectrum. So if, if the church promotes it heavily, those who disagree with it are, are going to be offended and perhaps uh, retreat in their faith or their commitment to the church. On the other hand, if you don't, if you don't publicize it, if you don't promote it, then there's the other side of the spectrum who, who are hurt and harmed and who uh, unfortunately lose faith and are distanced from the church. And so if there's, if, if no matter which side you take, you're going to have that problem, isn't it best to take the stance of putting it out there so that at least those who who are in accordance with what's written in those those documents or in that stance are the ones who are being protected rather than those who are judgmental and bigoted in uh, stereotype others and who create false assumptions about what God sees in his eyes and what he doesn't? It's really it's frustrating yeah. because I know this website's out there and I mean, we've even offered at our local level to do, um, you know, to do fireside, to do a fifth Sunday combined priesthood release society meeting. Um, and, and they just, the reason they give us for not wanting to do that is it'll make too many people uncomfortable. <laughs> and I kind of feel like, well, maybe they need to be made a little bit uncomfortable. Um, and I understand that they don't want us to do it because it could look like, you know, we're pushing, you know, a certain agenda because of our son. But I think maybe there could be other people we could find that could do a good job if it wasn't us. Um, but I just think it's a, it's a conversation that needs to happen because not only are so many people's opinions on this issue changing, you know, it's it's estimated that um, homosexuality shows up in the population about as much as left-handedness. I'm left-handed. My daughter's left-handed. You know, it's between 8 and 10% of the population. Um, so if you take that number and then all of the family members and loved ones of gay people, that becomes a significant number of people. And you just, you can't ignore their position and their pain and what they're going through and have them want to continue staying a part of the church. Right. And, and that group, I mean, for many of them, they're coming in the front door and they're going right out the back because there's just no space for them. And, uh, and, and I don't know, I don't know where we get the idea that this has to be a church of comfortability, that we, that we all can't stretch ourselves a little bit. I mean, certainly your family's had to do that in many ways over the last four years. I've had to do that. I think that in some ways, as you pointed out earlier, how your testimony and your faith have grown leaps and bounds over the last two and a half years. It's through that, that stretching ourselves, through being a little uncomfortable, through trying to sort out what's culture, what's doctrine, what comes from God and what doesn't, that we discover this beautiful treasure underneath all of that. 
Uh, and I think that'd be good for all of us to do a little more digging and, and a little more uh, introspection into ourselves to, to see what really we hold to be true and, and to let go of things that simply don't hold up. And, and unfortunately, I wish this site did get more publicity. I will tell you, I'm, I'm doing a, uh, a training, uh, fireside for, uh, a, a, not my stake, but another stake I've been asked to visit. And they've asked me how to essentially help Latter-day Saints in our, in an internet age, hold on to their testimonies and deal with tough questions. And one of the points I'm, I'm adamant that I'm going to make is be aware of what the church's resources already are. And of course, one of them I'm going to talk about is the Mormon and Gays website so that, so that they're not feeling like they have to take a stance that's not even supported by the church to begin with. Sure. Yeah. Gosh, can you come do a fireside like that in my state too? Uh, uh, yeah. Give me, give me a contact number and I'll see if they'll let me. I would um, love that. Well, there's so much, there's so much that can be done to make space for gay people in the church that doesn't require major policy changes. I mean, I, I, there's a whole list of things that I could think of. There's, uh, there needs to be a stop to the conference talks and LDS newsroom statements that are condemning gay marriage and homosexuality. I mean, there is not a Mormon out there who doesn't know what the church's position is on gay marriage. We all know, yet they continue to belabor that point. And if you look at other, you know, world religion leaders, you know, the Dalai Lama, the Pope, um, other people that are high-level leaders of their church, they all probably have similar viewpoints as the Mormon church, you know, the biblical version or, or marriages between a man and a woman, but they are not constantly talking about it. And even if a gay person isn't in a same-sex marriage or relationship, these messages are hugely rejecting. They're devastating for them. And I, I, it just feels like, and maybe it's from the position I'm coming from, but it feels like leaders are giving such emphasis to that point and I'm not hearing as much harsh condemning talks on divorce, on infidelity, on gambling, on prescription drug abuse, on the things that are happening way, way, way more often than, than gay marriage. I mean, if it's only 8 to 10% of the population, why aren't we addressing most of the talks to the other 90% of the population? You know, and I, I, you know, they mention those things, but they don't, they don't hammer on them like they do on, on gay marriage and, I feel like, you know, bishops and stake presidents need much better education and training because some are fantastic and some are awful, you know, and it's this whole idea of, of leadership roulette. You know, I, I have like, you know, jealousy over some different stakes where I hear, you know, firesides they're having or how progressive or, you know, accepting and, and loving that the leadership is, you know, and I, I wish mine was, was more that way. I wish, you know, like we were talking about the Mormons and Gays website was promoted more. You know, all of these things can happen without a change in church policy on gay marriage. And every one of these things would make our wards and stakes more welcoming and inclusive for our LGBT brothers and sisters. And right. make them we, maybe want to be with us more. Yeah. And when we talk about the issues, you know, what brings us closer to Christ or what causes more distance in that relationship? When you talk about issues like infidelity, uh, drug use, uh, you know, you name it, those things have so much more of a direct impact on my personal effort within my family to get back to my father in heaven and to build a relationship with the savior. What two men or two women do three blocks down the road from me doesn't impact me on a personal level in, in that relationship and in that journey back to, back to my father in heaven. And, and yet, like you say, we spend so much capital time and resources on, on an issue that, that may be, and certainly, certainly I allow for Heavenly Father to see that as an important issue, but in the whole scheme of things, I wonder, I wonder if it's a top priority in his, uh, 
in uh, in his uh, in his book. So um, I want to ask you three last questions to kind of wrap up. The uh, the first one may be kind of a difficult one. What what do you think needs to happen? Because I know I know having listened to your story and having heard you talk multiple times that you've you've made the statement and made it pretty clear that that whether your son ends up staying in the church or not is still kind of up in the air. That uh, that the way things are currently structured, it, it's going to be difficult for him to stay in, and so that may not be the choice he ends up making. And as you said, we'll see. What what would need to happen? What does need to happen in the church to make enough space for? For people like Jordan to be able to say, you know what, I'm going to hang around. I'm going to stay in this, and it's and it's worth that that fight. Um, well, there's you know there's the stuff I mentioned just a minute ago about non-policy changes that could happen. Um, but I think one of the hugest things, and it's something that I think the church is going to have to, I don't know, make a decision on in the next few years, is how they view marriage between same-sex couples. Because I'm watching state after state, it's like dominoes that are accepting um, gay marriage. So when gay marriage becomes legal in the state that you live in, it it, it becomes, it's kind of one of those, uh, it's a little bit of a catch-22 for the church because a lot of times they describe um, homosexual, homosexual acts or same-sex marriage as breaking the law of chastity. But if they are married, that is not breaking the law of chastity. I mean, there are people, and and... If you take the temple totally out of it because that is a religious ceremony, if you make it just a civil marriage, you know, some close friends of mine are not married in the temple. They are civilly married, and we view them as married and keeping the law of chastity. They're not breaking the law of chastity. So when it becomes the law of the land in the state that they're living in, that it is legal, um, the church is going to have to decide if that is breaking the law of chastity. Currently, they define it that it is. Um, but we also have an article of faith that says that we believe in honoring and sustaining the law of the land. And we also have another article of faith, number nine, which is my personal favorite, that says more revelation is coming. And that gives me hope that maybe there's going to be some revelation on this issue. You know, that allowing um, gay people to go to the temple is an entirely different issue, and that will be something that when and if that's resolved, that won't be happening anytime soon. And for me personally, I the temple is a conflicting place for me because it feels like it's for straight people. There's no place for my son there. Um, but it would be huge if the church just said civil marriage is a civil right. Religion has nothing to do with that. It's a separate how we view, you know, eternal marriage. That's a religious thing, and that's a totally different level. And we separated the two in our mind to not make it marriage is, is forever. Marriage is the temple. It isn't always for some people. Some people are only civilly married, and it's okay. But if that could be recognized and there could be, you know, these amazing gay couples sitting with us in church that are married and looked at as keeping the law of chastity and, you know, allowed to take the sacrament, allowed to be with us, allowed to hold callings, that could be a game changer for this. I uh, I had a conversation, uh, an interview with Mitch Main. Uh, last week and uh, having talked to him was sharing a story uh, that we certainly have throughout the church and in lots of our wards and stakes we have situations where uh, boyfriends and girlfriends are together and they're coming back to church 
And the first thing we, we certainly would not do is say, okay, let's have a disciplinary council because this, this boyfriend and girlfriend, they, they're coming back into activity and obviously they're breaking the law of chastity. Let's, let's send them, you know, let's essentially punish them and, and call them to repentance. There are lots of instances where that's not the first course of action. That's not the appropriate angle that leaders attack the issue from. And I know personally of some of these circumstances where, where is the person living the commandments exactly as the church lays them out? No. Is the first thing we do is to run and have a disciplinary council or do we find other ways to bring them to Christ by allowing them to participate because of the susceptibility they have to being offended or falling away and, and if that would not do them any good? I, I agree. We have we have very close friends, um, several gay couples that are married that in their life, they are living every principle of the gospel, including the law of chastity in my mind, because they're married. But, I mean, they, they're excommunicated members, sadly, but, you know, one friend in particular puts away 10% of his earnings every month for when he's able to be rebaptized. And he's essentially paying tithing that will be given to the church when he's able to. Wow. He fasts. He keeps the, the word of wisdom. I mean, he's at church every week. He's a better Mormon than I am, and he's not even allowed to participate. And I look at stories like this, and I think, as a church, we are poorer for not having these people with us. Knowing that, that my son has always been this way and came to us this way, and this is something that's been told to me in, in several priesthood blessings, you know, things along the lines of his feet were placed on his path before he was ever born. That, to me, leads me to believe that God either makes them gay, allows them to be gay as part of their experiences in this life, or however that works out, I don't know. but. He knows that they are this way, and I don't think he intends for us to shun them or exclude them. You know, I think a lot of the experiences of gay people is to teach us straight people how to love the way Christ wants us to love without condition and to look beyond stereotypes to see the person. In regards to your son, Jordan, and we're talking about this, right, within the church culture, there's this idea that as long as you're true to yourself, there's minimal space here for those who are gay. Um, how does your son handle that? How's he, I mean, how does he hang in there? I mean, you say he still attends from time to time. I just want to maybe tap into what's, what's the strength that, uh, that he's got that he's able to, to say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to endure this and, uh, and hope that something changes. Um, well, it's the, the one thing that we talk to him a lot about is trying to, you know, like we talked about earlier is separate the pure gospel, the doctrine of the church from the culture and the policies and some, well-meaning but ignorant members, um, but that is a really difficult concept for a 15-year-old to be able to do. It takes a certain level of spiritual maturity to be able to do that, and he hasn't he hasn't quite gotten there. In fact, it's a it's a difficult thing for me to be able to separate sometimes. Um, but so you know, to be honest, there are days where he's just very angry. He's angry at the church. He doesn't understand why why he's not accepted like everybody else. Just you know, because this is who he is. He he feels like people see him as broken or wrong or can't associate with their their children. Um, so, you know, he's had conversations with us, and, and he's very open with us um, about his feelings. And he has conversations where he's either angry at God or he doesn't believe that there is a God. I, I can't tell you how many gay people I know that feel the same way. They're, they've either become pretty much completely atheist um, because a God of love doesn't treat people this way or they just have anger towards God. Um, and it, it breaks my heart personally because one of the most important things for me is that he has a relationship with his Savior and that he knows his heavenly parents love him 
that's hugely important for me. And he's not getting that right now in the Mormon church, at least where we live. Um, we try and, and, and do that at home with him, you know, and he goes sometimes, but almost always we have to have conversations, I don't know, to, to kind of deconstruct some of what he's heard. And a lot of the things are just, you know, the normal lessons that, that they teach that are perfect for other people, but for his situation are very difficult. It's really hard for him to hear a lesson on temple marriage where he knows that's off the table for him, you know, and he hears that that's like the highest level of happiness and fulfillment in life. It's heartbreaking for him. Um, lessons on, you know, it's super important for young men to serve a mission. That's a huge question mark for him. We don't know if that's going to happen. Um, that, that, you know, brings a whole host of other complications and issues being gay. Um, you know, lessons on, on proper dating etiquette. All of these things are just, they, they vary from awkward to, you know, excruciatingly painful for him. So I, you know, the, the churches, the official church statistic from LDS Family Services is over 80% of gay men and women leave the church. There isn't a statistic on how many come back. Um, I know some do and some never do. So, you know, that, that number, that statistic is like looming large for us. And he's got one foot out the door right now. And I have to square with that and be okay with him leaving the church. Um, part of me thinks that is the best thing for him because our church is not a spiritually safe place for gay people right now. But then there's a part of me who loves being Mormon and, and having that in my life and growing up that way. And I want him to have those experiences. So I, I kind of feel caught. Um, but I, I just don't, unless there are some changes, I just don't see it being healthy for him to stay. Right. No, and I hear that and I completely completely grasp that. You know, when, when Brother Mitch Main and I were talking, one of the things he brought up was Sophie's Choice, which I, I had never heard of the term before. And after I got done with the interview, I had to go look it up. And it was about a uh, a mother, and I'm, I'm thinking this was maybe uh, Nazi Germany, if I'm not mistaken, but she had to choose between whether her son lived or whether her daughter lived. That was the choice she was presented with. Obviously, that's not a good choice. It's a lose-lose. And so a Sophie's choice defined is a lose-lose situation where you're presented with two choices where neither option is is an opportunity to have a positive outcome. And he was talking about this in regards to this issue because we have so many gay Latter-day Saints who suffer from depression, who are kicked out of their homes and become homeless, who uh, even to the extreme commit suicide, and many of them... Uh, of these people who, who faced with the, the treatment they get from within the church, many of them leave the church just flat out. As you pointed out, 80%. And, and I guess the, the trouble here is the idea behind why families think they have to react a certain way, which we hit on before. There's this need, it's in, and Mitch called it a Sophie's choice, where we feel like we have to choose either to defend the church's honor, or to love our child, but that we can't do both. And so I just want to ask you as a wrap-up question, uh, I guess a, a two-part question. One is your advice to parents of uh, of gay children who are in the church and who all of a sudden are faced with this same experience and situation that you faced two and a half years ago. And then the second part of that is how to love your faith and your child without creating a Sophie's Choice in your mind. Okay. Um, well, my advice to other parents, um, they need to know that they belong to a church that believes that families are forever. That is one of my favorite parts of the church is how we view our families. So no matter what, that family is yours forever. And you really can have both. You really can have the church and your child. It's difficult, but, you know, loving your child is the easy part. And the pure gospel and the doctrine of Jesus Christ allows 
you all the room you need to navigate this, even if the culture or members make it difficult. And these parents need to know that they are accountable to God for their stewardship over their children. No one else, not extended family, not friends, not your bishop, nobody else. You are accountable to God for how you handle and how you raise your children. Um, you know, hurtful things have been said, will continue to be said, but I love this gospel. I love my heavenly parents. I love my Savior. And Mormonism is the language I use to communicate with them, to stay in touch with them. And it's it's like what President Ugdorf said in probably my favorite conference talk ever. There's room for you in this church. There's room for your gay loved ones. There's room for their family. Um, the culture just needs to catch up with, with that thinking. Um, but if I can provide one resource for parents that is probably the best one out there, and maybe you can provide a link to this um, when the podcast comes out, is to the Family Acceptance Project. Um, they are the ones that made the, the documentary on, on our family. Uh, they have a booklet that is called Supportive Families, Healthy Children. And there is one specifically for LDS families that was co-authored with Dr. Caitlin Ryan, who is the um, director of the Family Acceptance Project, and Bishop uh, Bob Reese. And the beautiful thing about the Family Acceptance Project and the work that they have done is that it takes the Sophie's choice out. You can... It tells you specifically ways to how to love your child, support them, and protect them while not threatening doctrine, where you can have both. So that is that is the one resource. If I could only give them one, it's that one. Um, there are also many LDS, LGBT-affirming support groups on Facebook. There's um, Affirmation.org, which is a brilliant organization for gay members of the church and their families. Um, they have a conference once a year that is in September. I think it's September 12th to the 14th this year. Um, but in reference to your second question on, you know, feeling like you have to choose between your child and your church, we went through that. That was immediately my thought is, what do I do? You know, I and when the current policy and teachings of the church make it clear that gay people, you know, especially those in same-sex relationships or marriage, are not welcomed or wanted, then it feels like a choice almost always has has to be made. Uh, so you do you support the church that you have loved your your whole life and believe in deeply that is in effect shunning your child and also dividing your eternal family, or do you support your child who was born this way, is sealed to you, and who God gave you to raise and love and protect? So for me, there wasn't ever even a choice. If I was pushed and had to make a choice between the two, it would be my son a hundred times over, because God gave me Jordan. He is mine in this life and the next, and God would never want me to shun, alienate, push him away in favor of his church. That's that's not the God I love or the God that I believe in that would want something like that. I mean, that, that doesn't even make sense to me. And, you know, we're a church of families. It's what's most important to us, so it stands to reason that we should try we should be trying harder to, to figure out a way to make these two opposing forces work together. And they can. It's difficult, but, but they can. Amen to that, uh, Wendy. I, I want to finish just by sharing, I guess, the conclusion to, to me having listened to your podcast on the Cultural Hall and, and having regained my composure after listening to, to that and, and then on the way back to my, my work, just thinking about the things, the experiences your family has had and the things you shared. It was a, it was a Monday that I listened to it and I said, you know what? We're going to, 
we're going to do something a little different. So I went home that night and I ran it by my wife and uh, said, hey, this is something I think we, we need to listen to. And so I didn't have it for uh, uh, the two youngest kids. We we sent them off to bed. Uh, I've got an 8-year-old and, and an 11-year-old and a 13-year-old and a 15-year-old. And I asked the 13 and 15-year-old to stay up with me and my wife, and we played your uh, your interview for them. And uh, all four of us were in tears because this issue, while I've always been a little more to the left than most Mormons, it had never hit me square in the face uh, until I heard you tell your story. And I just want to say that you have, have really helped me to really find, at least for now, my center of balance uh, on this issue. And uh, and I told Mitch last week, I said, if you ever have somebody who's having a hard time in, in northern Ohio, you can you can put my name on your Rolodex of, of people that uh, that you reach out to to help give support. And, and I extend the same invitation to you and your family. If anybody out this way ever needs help, you don't hesitate to let me know. I, I'm so grateful to have had you on today. And I hope that everybody who listens to this will look at themselves in the mirror and say, am I, am I acting Christ-like in the way I treat others? And am I being an extension of his hand and bringing them unto him? Uh, Wendy, thank you so much for being on today. Thank you for having me. Say 